Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see all of you. Thanks for being here today. Happy New Year. It is a new year, which we're excited about. Hopefully looking forward to a much better 2021 than a 2020, although maybe 2020 treated you okay. It certainly had its challenges, that's for sure. But we're excited about this new year and, and what it brings. And right off the bat here up front, I want to give you just a just a really brief update on where we're at as a church. Closing out the year, we've told you along the way that the end of the year is kind of a big deal around here as far as the giving in the church is concerned. We told you what it would take in order for us to break even for a expenses for this year. And we'll give you a more detailed update later on in the week. But I just want you to know right now that thanks to God's provision and your faithful giving, he has abundantly exceeded what we needed for our expenses for 2020. So praise God for that. It's wonderful. And thank you. Thank you for giving faithfully. I mean, it, it goes way beyond what we needed for expenses. And that includes Take Back Black Friday, which I think is at about 85000 right now. So that's right in the range of what we would normally get for a Take Back Black Friday, which is amazing for Camp Sputnik and the Culture Youth Ministry in North St. Louis. That is awesome. And the capital offering, which we had hoped to get around $100,000 for this year, is at $98,000 right now. So that is just absolutely incredible. And uh, yeah, we're, we can clap it again. That's fine. That's okay. <laughs> so thank you to all of you and so glad you're here with us today for this first Sunday of the new year and for all of you watching online out there as well. Thank you for joining us. We are in the book of Colossians and we're studying through this together. We're going to be wrapping up. We're almost to the end of Colossians actually. Only a few more weeks. It's hard to believe we are there and we're going to be in Colossians chapter three today. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be in Colossians three and four. Just to give you a little review though, Colossians, one of the themes we've talked about is the fact that Jesus changes everything in our lives. When you trust in Jesus, it begins a process of transformation that happens in your life where you become more like Christ. Now that process can be a very joyful, wonderful thing if you go along with it. It can be a very challenging thing if you don't go along with it. But one way or another, God is going to work to transform you into the person he wants you to be, into someone who is like Christ. And you know, the Bible says that God disciplines his children that he loves. So if you are someone who has experienced the discipline of God in your life, that may be very discouraging in the moment. But really, if you take a step back, it should be a huge encouragement to us because it means you're his child who he loves. He's trying to get you back on the right path. And so God disciplines us when we're not going along with his work in, our, in transforming our life. And he encourages and helps us as we are going along with his transforming power in our life. And all of that is, is part of something that we've talked about in Colossians as being on the right path. Being on the right path in Colossians, we said as a rumble strip letter to warn you when you're starting to veer off the right path. It's not like some of Paul's other letters that were more guardrail letters, which are an indicator of you've already left the right path and now you're hitting up against something hard and you need to move back into where you were. So it's all about staying on the right path, the path of transformation where we become more like Christ and Jesus changes everything in our lives. Everything Jesus touches gets better in our lives. One of the things I want to call your attention back to comes from the second message in this series. We looked at Colossians 1.10, and there's a process of transformation and growth that happens there. And this is sort of a, a paraphrase or a, um, a summary of what Paul talks about in Colossians 1.10. We mentioned this a couple months ago. Right knowledge and right understanding 
lead to right living and right actions. And all the while you gain more knowledge of God. Now I know there's a lot packed into that phrase. So if you want to understand that more, you may want to go back and watch episode two again, because that's where we covered this. But right knowledge and right understanding lead to right living and right actions. And through all of that, Paul says, all the while you gain in your knowledge of God, which takes you right back to the beginning of this, the right knowledge. And so this is a cycle of spiritual growth, or maybe more accurately, it's a spiral, an upward spiral of spiritual growth. As we gain our knowledge, gain in our knowledge, we get more understanding, we live the right way, we choose the right actions, we get to know God better through that process, and that knowledge leads us right back into that process again, where we are growing to become more like Jesus. It's all about transformation. It's all about Jesus transforming every part of our lives to be more like him and what he wants us to be, what he designed us to be. That transformation impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we interact with other people. It impacts our relationships. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about relationships with other people at church, with our friends, with our spouses, with our children, parents and children. We've talked about all those things. And now in Colossians chapter three at the end, Paul is going to tell us how our relationship with Jesus should impact the way we work. This is gonna impact the way we work. A lot of Christians think that maybe um, work is a result of the fall. And before Adam and Eve sinned, it was just peaceful, blissful paradise. And it was a wonderful kind of thing where you didn't have to do anything. You just sort of sat around under the tree and waited for the fruit to fall into your hand and then ate it and boom, that was it. Just a beautiful, wonderful utopia where you didn't have to work. But that's not true at all. In fact, the Bible says that when God created Adam, he actually gave him a job description. He gave him a job to do. He told him that he was supposed to care for the garden and all the creatures in it. In fact, God brought all the animals to Adam for him to name. He gave him a database job. He's like, I want you to categorize and enter, log these names, figure out what we're gonna call all these animals. So Adam had a job and a job description. He had work to do and God designed humans to work. Work should actually be a very positive thing for us. It should be something that keeps us sharp. It keeps us active. It helps us grow. It gives us some purpose and satisfaction. But work, of course, like all other things God has created, can be twisted and abused and misused and distorted into something that was never meant to be by God in a way that actually becomes unhealthy for us. And so work can become an addiction. That's why we have workaholics. Work can become our only purpose in life. It can become the only thing we care about, the only thing that gives us drive and motivation. We can be motivated by our work to do foolish things that hurt other people. Or we can get to a point where work to us is just this thing we do on the side that we don't really care about at all. And we just sort of clock in, clock out and get the paycheck. And work can have other toxic effects on us as well. As we get motivated by our work, we may be motivated to sort of play the office politics game. And and that might even lead us to say things that are untrue about someone so that we can get ahead, maybe put them down a little bit or participate in workplace gossip about other people and put other people down through that. Office politics can make us do some crazy things. And sometimes there's a separation and maybe you've experienced this where it seems like there's your Christian life and there's your work life. And it's like at home and at church and and with my Christian friends, you know, I've got my Christian life, uh, but then I'm with my coworkers or my boss or my employees, and I'm kind of a different person because there's a separation between how I function at work and how I function the rest of the time. And I'm a Christian over here. And I sort of just become a secular person when I go to work. 
And what we're gonna see today from Colossians chapter three is that none of that is how God intends for the Christian to operate at work. There is not supposed to be a separation between how we function and what Jesus gets to influence in our lives. The transformation that Jesus wants to do in you and in me is supposed to impact everything. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into the actual text, we're gonna read the text. I need you to know up front that there are two parts to this message. It's gonna be a little bit of a different kind of message. There are two parts to it. The first part is the awkward part. There is going to be a significant awkward part to this message. And I'm gonna try to explain that. It's gonna become very clear to you as soon as we read the text, why it is so awkward. The second part is the applicable part. So there's gonna be an awkward part, that's half of it. And then there's gonna be an applicable part where we're gonna say, how can we take the universal principles here and apply it to our lives today? And I hope all of this will make sense as we go through it. So I just wanted to preface everything with that upfront. I understand how uncomfortable some of this is going to sound at first. So with that disclaimer, everybody with me, nobody's gonna get up and walk out when we read this passage. We're gonna turn to Colossians chapter three, verse 22 and read through verse verse one of chapter four. Paul says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done for God has no favorites. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Before we go any further, let's just stop and pray and ask God for wisdom in this challenging passage. Lord, this is an uncomfortable one for us to read. And uh, and I pray that you would give us some insight to understand what Paul meant by these words and, and how the early church in Colossae would have taken them and what are the principles that we can then take and apply in our lives, Lord. Help us to understand this well, and not only to understand this passage, but maybe to glean some things that will make our own personal Bible study richer and help us in interpreting your word accurately, rightly dividing the word of truth as you say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and deal with the elephant in the room, okay? Paul mentions slaves and masters like half a dozen times in this text. And that's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? That's kind of weird. And what's more uncomfortable than him talking about slaves and masters here is the fact that he never once condemns it. He never says that slavery is wrong. He never tells the slaves, your job is to rise up against your oppressors and overthrow them and get yourself out of this kind of circumstance. So how do we make sense of this? This is such an uncomfortable, awkward text. And and I can understand if some of you are going, that's pretty messed up, Paul. That is pretty messed up. Why would you say that? And passages like this are why many people have looked at the Bible and said, there is no way I'm gonna follow this book when it says stuff like that. Some people think that the Bible is hypocritical. Some people would say the Bible is immoral. Some people would say the Bible is wicked because it includes things like this. Paul is talking about slaves and masters and slavery. And he doesn't say, this is wrong. You need to stop it. This shouldn't be happening anymore in our society. So how do we make sense of this? These are good questions. These are not questions that we should shy away from. These are questions we should lean into because there are really good answers 
for all of this. And I'm going to give you some bullet points on this. I'm probably not going to be able to satisfy every question. That's always the case. There will always be a few people out there who are going, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but I'm not sure about this. And that's okay. That's good. It's good to question and to be skeptical and to dig deeper and to ask more. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you're a part of one of our groups here, which I hope you all are, I would encourage you, if you have questions after this message, to go to your group leader and say, hey, I'd like to talk more about this. I'm wrestling with some of these things. I'm not sure what to make of it. And that is absolutely okay. That's the kind of culture that we want to have here, where we help each other wrestle through these difficult questions. But I want to give you some bullet points that I think will help most of us understand this text in the way it was originally intended. So four things you need to know about this passage before we get into the applicable part. This is still the awkward part. Number one, we need to interpret the Bible within the time and culture to which it was written. We have to interpret the Bible within the time and culture to which it was written. The Bible has universal principles that transcend time. But those principles, those core truths, were given to a specific people at a specific time, in a specific location, in a specific culture and context. If God chose to write the Bible today and for the events of the Bible to occur today, they would look a little different. The core truths and principles would be the same, but the application of those principles into our world would look a little different. If the Israelites were running away from Pharaoh, Pharaoh would be sending tanks after them instead of chariots, right? That would be a difference that we would expect to see. The wise men traveling to see Jesus from afar would maybe be making their trek on motorcycles, following a drone in the sky or something like that. It could look a little bit different. Uh, Paul, as he's writing to his different churches, instead of writing to them, he'd be hopping on a Zoom call, right? And wouldn't that have made things so much easier? And he just hits the record button and says, distribute to all the churches, and everybody gets his messages that way. It's the same core truths, but it's going to look different in different cultures, we have a great example of this in 1 Timothy, which we started last year. We'll get back into it this year. We had to stop it because of the pandemic. But there's a, a part of 1 Timothy towards the end where Paul is talking about dress code. and He's talking about women in particular and saying, I want women to dress modestly, not with braided hair or gold jewelry. And you might read that today and think, what? I mean, I don't see anybody with braids out here, which is good because, you know, Paul said not to. But why? would Paul have any problem with braided hair or gold jewelry? That's not the principle. The principle is dress modestly. The cultural application of that principle in that day was don't wear gold jewelry or braided hair. Why is that? Well, because Rome was the epicenter of culture at this point, And the promiscuous lifestyle and culture of Rome was starting to get exported to all of the other territories that were under Roman rule. And so there were different locations like Ephesus and Colossae and other cities that had a historically more conservative foundation that were now being influenced by a really promiscuous lifestyle that was coming out of Rome. And it was sort of a race to the bottom as far as morals were concerned. And part of this was marked by some new hairstyles and new clothing practices that identified you with this sort of Rome epicenter cultural elite lifestyle that's very promiscuous and immoral. And so as a result, it was kind of understood that if you were wearing this sort of hairstyle, that was a big deal to them. They had certain hairstyles that were a big deal. Then it sort of identified you with this group of people. And so what Paul was saying there was, hey, the cultural application of this principle is here are some examples of what you shouldn't do in this culture at this time, at this place to live out this universal principle. And the universal principle is dress modestly. 
Don't attract the wrong kind of attention to yourself. Don't dress like the people who are obviously living an immoral lifestyle. Don't try to identify yourself with them. You are supposed to be different. And and today, if Paul were writing this, maybe he would say, don't dress like a pop star or don't dress like someone you see on TikTok or something like that. It's, It's a cultural example of a principle. No one assumes that you're immoral today if you wear gold jewelry or or braid your hair, by the way. That's something unique to that time and that culture. So this leads us to point number two about this text that we need to understand, which is that slavery in the ancient world was a much broader term than it is for us today. When we think of slavery today, we immediately assume a version that is forced on people, that is based on race. And that is for life. That's a lifetime of servitude. But in Paul's day, slavery typically was not for life. It had nothing to do with race. And it was often entered into by choice. This is something a lot of people don't understand about slavery in the ancient world, really for for thousands of years prior to what we currently understand. And we have to be very careful not to read our ideas about things back into the world this letter was written to. Because it's different. We have to understand that. Now, I am not saying that slavery was a great thing back then. I'm not saying that it's the ideal sort of arrangement for human relationships and workplace contracts. But we need to understand that it looked very, very different back then. And I also want to be clear that there were terrible examples of slavery back then too. Absolutely. Our concept of slavery did exist back then. It's just that the word that is used here for slavery, which means to be the property of someone else, described a broad range of workplace contracts, not just forced and abusive and based on race and those sorts of things. And I'll, I'll get into more of that in just a minute here. So because of this, servant or bond servant are words that are sometimes used instead of slave to help the modern reader better understand what Paul is talking about here. Now, a fair, accurate translation is the word slave, but the thing is, slave to them meant a broad range of possibilities, whereas to us, it means a much more narrow understanding. And so sometimes a synonym like bondservant is used just to help us understand there is a distinction here. I mentioned earlier that slavery was not typically based on race. It was actually mostly an economic thing. And it was a fact of life for many, many people. Historians estimate that around 50% of the Roman world was in some kind of slavery, some kind of bond servanthood. People living in the Roman empire that were someone else's property, about half of them. I mean, think about that for a minute. Half of the people you see walking around you, and this is true of the church as well. In fact, probably way more than 50% of the early church were made up of bond servants. Uh, there There were a lot of slaves in the early church. Imagine looking around you and half of the people or more that you see are somehow owned by someone else's property. That is a weird thing for us to imagine, but it was just the reality. It was normal for many, many people in the ancient world. Here's the other thing. Many of them were not forced into it. It was actually a pretty normal thing. And some of them would choose the life of bond servanthood because it was actually better for them than to maintain their freedom. For many people back in the ancient world, freedom was not the best way to have a roof over your head and food on your table. You actually could have a better life if you were to go into some sort of bond servanthood. There were no social safety nets like we have today. If you went bankrupt, you couldn't file chapter seven and and still be protected. There was no debt relief for you. You were the debt relief. Your person was the debt relief. And so you were the one that had to 
put yourself on the line to pay back a debt. And it could happen for a lot of different reasons. Maybe you started a business and you took out some loans and you mortgaged your house and you borrowed more money on top of that. And at the end of the day, the business failed. And so now you owe an incredible amount of money, more than you could possibly earn back and repay in any quick amount of time. And so you really have two options at this point. Your creditors are coming around. They want their money back. You can either flee and go try to start a new life somewhere else, maybe start the business over again, hope it goes better there uh, and, and hope that they never find you. Or you could go into bond servanthood and you could pay off your debt that way by becoming a slave. And so they would enter into a contract for a certain period of years. And after that period of years would up, they would have their freedom back. It was a fairly normal thing for people to enter and leave slavery. And a master might, because a servant was especially good at their job, but at some point just grant them their freedom early. Maybe they really liked working with them and they wanted to do something nice for them. That happened as well. It was also a path to citizenship. Slavery was a path to citizenship. Roman citizenship in the ancient world was a really, really big deal. And there weren't a lot of ways that you could just become a Roman citizen. But becoming the slave of a Roman citizen was one of them. And so some people would choose to become a bond servant to a Roman citizen. And at the end of a specified number of years, typically, there would be a formal ceremony where they would receive their freedom and Roman citizenship. And now they had benefits and privileges they never could have had otherwise. It was a very common practice for them. So to be clear, I'm not saying this is the best arrangement for humans. I'm not saying this is a great thing, um, but it was often the best of some tough options. And sometimes it was a very positive relationship for all the parties involved. The person who was becoming a bondservant was now guaranteed food and clothing and lodging. The, the master was taking on the responsibility for that. And in return, the master was able to get their labor for typically a certain number of years. And it was often better for people than what they could get um, if they were not part of that arrangement. Some bondservants were treated extremely well. Some became like members of the family. Again, not all. There are examples on the extremes of, of both of these ends here. But in some cases, bond servants were lawyers. They were accountants. They worked in government. They actually held fairly good jobs in many cases. Some bond servants were able to make enough money in their work that they bought back their own freedom. That was a part of the whole deal. That was a part of this cycle. So we need to understand that when we read this passage in Colossians. In many cases, the bond servants were indistinguishable from any Roman citizen. In fact, at one point, the Roman Senate almost passed a law that all the bond servants had to wear some kind of identifier or special clothing or something so that they could tell who was sort of under contract of someone else. And they decided against it only because there were so many of them that they thought it would be a politically dumb move to create some sort of visual identifier where suddenly they could all see how many other people were in the same status they were. And they didn't want any kind of political uproar or revolt or anything along those lines. So this is a very common thing back then. And the fourth thing I want you to know about this before we get into the applicable part is that the Bible condemns what we think of as slavery, very clearly condemns it. In Deuteronomy 15, God gives instructions that if a person ever voluntarily sells themselves to become a bondservant or a slave of another person, there were some parameters around that. The maximum contract could only be six years. In the seventh year, they had to be given their freedom back and they had to be given a generous severance package from the master. That's right there in the Old Testament law. If you need to pay off a debt, you could do it, but the term could only be for a maximum of six years and you got all sorts of goodies when you quit. So it wasn't a bad arrangement for people. It was, it was a kind of social safety net for people back then, actually. 
And God says that if they love their arrangement, if they enjoyed working for this person and their family, if it was actually a a great life for them, they could opt into a longer contract. They could opt into a lifelong contract if they wanted to. But again, that was completely voluntary, not coerced. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, in Exodus 21, and in Deuteronomy 24, the Bible clearly, very clearly condemns forced slavery. Under the Old Testament law, to force someone into slavery was punishable not by a slap on the wrist, not by some sort of fine, but by death. Under Old Testament law, if you tried to force someone to be a slave, if it was not something they entered into voluntarily as a working arrangement, like a contract, that was punishable by death. Now it's true that some Christians in our recent history, some people who claim to be Christians anyway, in our recent history, have taken the words of Paul in Colossians chapter three and have twisted them and abused them and misused them to promote their own idea of what slavery means and have forced it on people and have based it on race and have committed horrible atrocities and they have tried to back it up with God's word. What I need you to know is that none of that is supported by the Bible. None of that is what Paul is talking about or what the Bible approves of, even though it has been misused that way for selfish gain by people in the past. That is not what the Bible supports. Paul is talking to people who, for the most part, are in a bond-servant sort of relationship where it's like a contract for employment. And it looks differently than our contracts do today, although in some ways you might think not that different. We have contracts that we enter into that have consequences for us. We can lose our homes in some cases. We can lose our savings and our retirement, depending on what we've entered into, what sort of arrangement. We can take risks and we can have consequences for those risks. And we can even lose our freedom and go to jail if we do certain things. And if we do things the wrong way in our business world. And so certainly it looks very different. And I'm not trying to say it was the best arrangement, but I am trying to say it looked very different than what some people think of when they read this text today. So Paul is talking about people who who are probably in the majority type of working relationship. Most people back then are either bond servants, again, around 50% of the population, or have bond servants working for them. So this is probably the most common working relationship that exists back then. Certainly there are others as well, but this is extremely common. And Paul is using this as his way of saying, here is how you should function as a Christian and be transformed by Jesus in your work. In, your, in, in one of the most extreme kind of examples here where you are literally owned by this person. And that's a, that's a contractual arrangement that you are in for, for some reason. How are you supposed to function in that? Are you allowed to kind of do whatever you want? Can you, can you just, you know, slack off? How, how should you respond there based on your relationship with Jesus Christ? And so we can carry forward these principles to today. If this is the most extreme example of a work relationship and Paul is saying, this is how you should function as a Christian, then certainly today with our arrangements with bosses and supervisors and workers and all of that, these core principles can carry forward for us today. So let me give you six of these. Six principles that we can pull out of what Paul says here in Colossians chapter three. And the first one is work hard at whatever you do. Whatever you do, no matter what it is, you could be a ditch digger, you could be a doctor, you could be a dentist, you could be a truck driver, you could be anything. And Paul is saying, work willingly, work hard, work with all your might at whatever you do. I once worked with a guy, we're gonna call him Jim. 
It's not his real name, but I'll just use the name Jim. And Jim liked to just goof around at work. In fact, most of the time he spent in his office, I think he was just sort of tinkering with stuff, playing with things, not really actually getting much work done. And at one time I asked Jim, I gave him lots of different tasks to do. I asked Jim to research some product that we needed to purchase. And about 30 minutes later, I got an email from him with the device that he thought we needed to buy. And it was $14,000. And if Jim had just done a little bit of work, a little bit of research, what he would have discovered is that the exact thing that we needed that did all the stuff we needed, but none of the stuff we didn't need was less than $2,000. But it looked like he had just typed in the type of product on Google, picked the first result and said, here you go. And then went back to goofing around in his office. He didn't work very hard. How does that represent someone who says that they are a follower of Jesus? If it just, you get the impression that they are a lazy person. Sometimes when we're not in the job we want, we're not in the job we think we're gifted for, that we're talented for, that we don't enjoy, that we don't have a passion for, or maybe we used to, but we don't now. Sometimes the the temptation is to just slack off, isn't it? To do just enough to not get fired. And those are the worst kinds of employees. It's easier if you do enough to get fired because then you can get rid of them, get somebody better in there. But if they do just enough to not get fired, now you're stuck with them and yet they continue to hold the organization back and weigh everyone else down. Now, let me put this into spiritual terms for you. When Christians slack off at work, it represents other Christians and Christ poorly. And the reverse is also true. When Christians do their best at work, it represents Christ and other Christians well. It doesn't matter whether you're a dentist or a farmer or a truck driver or a lawyer or a ditch digger or whatever you do. When you do your best at work, it represents Christians and Christ well. And people may ask, why are you giving 100%? Why are you giving your A game to this when I know this isn't your favorite thing to do? I know this isn't what you want to be doing long term. And it's an opportunity for you to say, I'm not really doing this for you or for this organization. I'm doing this for God. This is what he, he has made me to work and to work well. And I'm going to do my best because I follow Jesus, not because I love what I'm doing. And wouldn't you agree that's a very different motivation than what most people have at work? We're not doing this for profit or for position. We're doing this because of Jesus, because he's transformed our lives. Whatever you do, work willingly at it. The number two thing is do what you say you will do. Do what you say you will do. Paul says, try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. You all know the types of people that when the boss is around, they act one way. They say they're going to do certain things. They try to make it look like they've been working all along. And as soon as the boss walks away, it's like, all right, back to whatever we wanted to do before. Back to solitaire, back to, back to fun stuff, whatever it is. Back to just talking around and not getting much done. But Paul says, uh, try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching, not just when they're around, not just when they show up. That's not when you start to work, even when they're not there. And why is that? It's because of the fear of the Lord. He says, not because they might catch you, but because of reverent fear for the Lord. What that means is you're not just doing this because they're watching you. You're doing this because God is watching you. It's your respect for God that causes you to do a good job at work, not your fear of the manager. As much as that's a legitimate fear, it's God who is always watching you and expects you to work hard at your job. And what this means is really interesting to me because it means that our respect for and submission to our earthly authorities and our bosses here on earth is a reflection to God of our respect for and submission to him. He's saying you should work hard even when your boss isn't around because you're actually working for me and not for him. I want you to do this work. 
And this work may seem menial and it may seem like there's no spiritual value attached to it. And yet it is what you are there right now to do. And so do it well with all your heart because you're doing it for me, not for them. No matter what kind of work you are doing. It's an amazing thing how Jesus transforms the way we work. So do what you say you will do. Number three, follow authority unless it violates a higher authority. Paul's instructions here assume that the boss is not asking us to do something that we shouldn't do. That, that, that nothing unethical is being expected of us here. And if that's the case, if something that the boss is asking you to do goes against what the Bible says you should do, then God takes priority. God takes precedent over whatever else they might expect you to do. And we all have an option today that bond servants back in the day did not necessarily have. They could certainly refuse to do something unethical. We can just quit. I don't think any of you, too many of you are absolutely locked into a job where if someone said you have to do this unethical thing or you lose your job, you would have to, or not lose your job, but you, you can't even have a job. You, you always have the option to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now, maybe the first thing we should do is talk to our boss and say, I don't think we should be doing this. And let me explain with you graciously and humbly why I don't think we should be doing this. This violates my conscience. This goes against my beliefs. I think this is unethical. You should have that conversation. But if it comes right down to it and you have to choose between keeping your job and doing something unethical and losing your job or quitting your job, then I think that's a fairly easy choice to make. And fortunately, it's one that we can make. But here's the thing. Continuing in a job, no matter what it is, and being two-faced or lazy is not an option for the Christian. Continuing in a job and being lazy or not doing what we say we will is just not an option for the Christian if you're going to follow what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Number four, work as an act of worship. Work as an act of worship. Paul says work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. I think this is an absolutely amazing concept. Because a lot of the things we do at work don't seem very spiritual. Now, admittedly, it's a little bit different for me. Most of what I do, I can trace pretty quickly back to a spiritual purpose of, of some kind. But I know for many of you, that's not the case. And you may think about your job, whatever it is, whether it's car sales or, or medical or insurance or whatever it is that you do. So, and you may think, man, where, what is the connection here to something spiritual? And yet Paul is saying, whatever you do, whatever it is, Work at it with all your heart, with all your might. Work at it willingly. That's what that means. As if you were doing it for God, as if God himself walked in instead of your boss and said, I want you to go do this thing. That's how well you're supposed to do it. That's, that's pretty incredible. And by the way, if we all do that, that's gonna reflect really well on Jesus. All of a sudden, all of our bosses are gonna be like, wow, that's amazing that you would put that much effort into this. I didn't even think you liked working here. And you'd be like, I don't, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for God. Really? And they're going to start to be curious about that. One of the jobs that bond servants had to do in the ancient Roman world was, well, it wasn't very fun to do. Okay, let me set it up this way. The chemical cleaning industry was not well developed at this time. And so one of the few liquid chemical cleaners around was a human byproduct. Does that make sense to everybody? There's a whole industry that developed around this. And the collection of this, it was sort of like the, the milk bottle deliveries in reverse. You leave a jar out in front of your door and somebody comes along and, and picks it up and takes it to a collection facility. And this was one of the ways that they could clean things, including clothes. 
And so there'd be a trough, and some of this happened at home, some of this happened at a laundry facility. There'd be a trough where you'd pour water and you'd pour some of this cleaning agent. And then the bond servants would take off their sandals. And as if they were treading grapes in a wine press, they would get in and agitate the clothes so that the ammonia would break up the stains. And, And then after they were done, they'd pull the clothes out and they'd rinse them off with water, you know, for obvious reasons. And the cleaning cycle was done. This is one of the jobs that bond servants had to do back in Paul's day. And it's into this kind of an environment with this kind of a possibility. Paul knows this type of stuff is what some of these bond servants are doing. And he says, work willingly at whatever you do, no matter what it is, as if it was Jesus, not your boss who came in and said, I want you to get in there and clean those clothes with your feet and that stuff. As if it was Jesus that came to you and said, I want you to fill out these reports. As if it was Jesus that said, I want you to go do this job over here, even though it's far away and you don't want to do it. Now, again, none of this is to say that you cannot choose a different job if you want to. But if you're going to stay in a job, then you need to work willingly at whatever you do, as if God asked you to do it. Number five, if you do wrong, God will allow you to face the consequences. Paul says God has no favorites. He's not going to give you a pass. If you do something unethical or unbiblical or to hurt someone else, if you sabotage someone else at work, if you lie about them, spread rumors about them, do things to to hurt them in some way, God is not going to say, well, he's one of my children, so I'm just going to kind of make sure nothing bad happens to him. It's possible that some of the bond servants and many of the early Christians were bond servants. It's possible that some of them thought, hey, I'm a new creation in Christ now. I've got God watching over me. I've got Jesus in my life. Nothing bad can happen to me. So I can do whatever I want at work. I'm, this isn't even that big of a deal to me anymore. I'm not even gonna worry about that anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. And Paul, Paul would absolutely say, as he has in this letter already, you are absolutely on equal footing with anyone spiritual, but you still have authority structures on earth. You still have responsibilities on earth. And if you slack off at work or if you do something wrong or inappropriate or unethical to someone else, God is not going to say, well, he's my child, so I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to him. God will let you face the consequences if you do something wrong in your work. Finally, number six, bosses and supervisors must be fair and just to those who work for them. In verse one of chapter four, Paul says that they should be fair and just because they also have a master in heaven. And what this means is that just as God has expectations for the worker and the behavior of the worker, God has expectations for the boss, for the supervisor, for the master, the person who is in charge. So there should never be any abuse or discrimination or unfair treatment or unethical treatment for anyone who is working for a Christian who who calls Jesus their Lord. Just as the worker represents Jesus in what they do, the boss, the supervisor represents Jesus in what they do as well. So what happens when both bosses and workers do this well? What happens when both bosses and workers view their work as an act of worship and work at it willingly with with all their heart as if they're working for the Lord and not for people? Well, everyone sees the difference. Everyone can see this is a different working relationship than what we see somewhere else. I can't believe the way you treat each other so well. 
And, and even though sometimes the boss makes decisions that the worker doesn't agree with, the worker respects the boss's authority and doesn't badmouth them to other people. And even though sometimes the worker sort of screws up and does something wrong over here, the boss doesn't get on social media and just post about it to everybody. I can't believe what an idiot my employee is. And they treat each other with fairness and respect and other people see that and they go, wow, there is something different about these people that follow Jesus. Why? Because they have a transformed life. That's what it's like when we're on the right path and we're becoming more like Jesus. It should impact everything we do, not just our relationships, not just our home life, not just what we do with each other in the body of Christ. It should impact our work too. See, there is no separation between the Christian life and the work life. We are followers of Jesus there too. So I want to close by asking you one question, and that is this. If your coworkers, and I know I'm just kind of talking to employees right now, but I'll, I'll get to everybody else in a minute. If your coworkers suddenly found out that you are a Christian, would they be surprised? If your coworkers found out you were a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they want to be a Christian too? Would they think of you as a good example of what a follower of Jesus should do at work? Would they want to be one with you? And if not, what would you need to change to better represent Jesus in the workplace? I'm going to put the five things back on the screen, or six things rather, back on the screen. Six things that Paul is telling workers they need to do in their workplace arrangements. And in one of the more extreme arrangements we can imagine. So certainly it applies to us in our jobs today. And I would love for you to look at this list and think to yourself and maybe pray and ask God and say, Lord, what of this do I need to work on in my life? Where have I been falling short? Where do I need to surrender more of this to you and allow this to be true of me in my job? And I know not everybody here has a job in the, in the literal sense of the word. Not everybody here is in that kind of arrangement. Maybe some of you are students or retired or uh, you just aren't working right now. Maybe you've recently been laid off or something. Uh, there, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. There could be all sorts of reasons why you don't have the kind of workplace arrangement that we're thinking of, but you still have responsibilities. You still have tasks that you need to do. You still have expectations that are on your life from all sorts of different angles and directions. And so what I would love for you to do is look at the same list and think to yourself, how can I apply these in my life with my responsibilities, with my tasks, with the things I need to do? You know, Adam did not have a 401k or a human resources department. Adam did not have a formal working arrangement like we would think of today, but he had responsibilities in life. He had things God asked him to do. And so just, just as Adam did, you and I need to think about the responsibilities we have and how do we represent Christ well in everything we do. And if you do that, whether it's other responsibilities or workplace responsibilities, if you will live these principles out in your life and represent Jesus wherever you are, let that transformation touch every aspect of your life, including your work, including your tasks, then what is going to happen? Well, our work is going to be an act of worship. We're going to be doing it for the Lord and not for people. And it's going to reflect back on Jesus so that people will say, why do you do this so well when I know you don't enjoy it all the time? And you can say, I do it for God. I do it because Jesus is in my life. That's the kind of people that we need to be as followers of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me now as I pray for us? Lord, thank you for giving us instruction that touches every area of our life, even our work. Thank you for not just caring about how we treat our, our family members and our friends and other people at church, but even our coworkers. 
and, and even the task list that we have to do, Lord, and, and giving us some purpose and some of the things that at times seem menial, seem uh, unimportant, seem like they have no spiritual value. And yet everything we could possibly do, even some of the lowliest jobs that bond servants would do 2000 years ago, you say, do it as if you're doing it for the Lord. So my prayer, God, is that you would help us to live that out this week, that tomorrow would be the start of a new week that's better than last week, a week that represents you well, that glorifies you, even if no one sees it, because we know you see it. Even if our boss isn't around, even if no one's watching to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, Lord, help us to give our best because we're doing it for you. And we want to glorify you and worship you in our work. And now, Lord, as we remember your sacrifice that, that makes it possible for us to have this transformed life, this life that's filled with joy and peace because of what you have done for us. We turn our attention to your, to your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for dying on the cross for us, for giving us this new life in you. And we remember what you did. It's in your name we pray, amen.